Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Ron Hansen, also a national reporter for the Republic. The killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police who knelt on his neck for nearly nine minutes has brought police practices and accountability to the forefront. In cities all across the nation, protesters have taken to the streets, demanding justice and change. Phoenix is no different. Nearly a year ago in July, we here on The Gaggle released an episode about police shootings. Arizona Republic reporters Bree Burkett and Uriel Garcia published a sweeping analysis about the use of force among Phoenix police and the disproportionate impacts on low-income and minority neighborhoods. We re-released that episode yesterday. Consider it a prerequisite to today's conversation. And if you haven't heard it, go ahead and listen to that first. Today, we're talking solutions, or at least incremental fixes, proposed to address police brutality, profiling, and other police practices many today see as unjust. One such solution is civilian oversight of police. In fact, this month, Phoenix City Council approved spending $3 million for a new Office of Accountability and Transparency. That comes out of the city's $1.3 billion budget. So what exactly will this office do? How will it operate in practice? Plus, we've heard calls for defunding the police. What would that mean and how likely is a proposal like that to pass? That's what we'll get to the bottom of today. Here to talk with us today is reporter Jessica Baim, who covers the city of Phoenix, and our public safety reporter, Uriel Garcia. Thanks so much for being here with us, guys. Of course. Happy to be here. Thank you guys for having us on. We want to break this conversation into two parts. First, we're going to focus on civilian oversight, and then we'll talk about what it would mean to defund the police. So starting with civilian oversight, Uriel, can you give us the background on this? What do we mean when we say civilian oversight of police? And when did that call begin? Um, Well, civilian oversight uh, here, what it means is having an office uh, that is uh, filled with uh, criminal justice experts that are not police officers. Um, and they would review complaints from residents who feel that something unjust happened to them when they they had a police encounter. And they would also investigate use of force cases. Ultimately, they would uh, this office would make a recommendation to the police chief about an outcome of a of a of a case. Um, the calls for for this type of office have actually been around for a long time. Uh, it comes and goes, but I think it finally picked up steam and after uh, a record number of police shootings in 2018 from the Phoenix Police Department. And it was kind of hard to ignore that there may be an issue of police shootings in Phoenix. Um, and ever since then, uh, like I said, it picked up steam and, and it, it picked up a lot of support at the uh, the city council level. Did your reporting from last year on police shootings help the issue kind of pick up steam among elected officials and city leaders? I think the analysis definitely helped put things into context. Um, 
there was a lot of anecdotal evidence from the community that was already helping, but uh, the data definitely put uh, people could point to some hard facts and say this is a problem and look at look at all these numbers. So, Jessica, the Phoenix City Council just passed a budget that you've reported on that funds a new oversight office called the Office of Accountability and Transparency. What exactly will that office do? So as Uriel kind of mentioned, uh, this office is made up of civilians, people who are not police officers, and it gives people who've had experiences with the Phoenix Police Department an opportunity to go directly to that office and report concerns. Then that group will basically have the opportunity to initiate an investigation um, outside of the police department. And what's significant about this, because people will tell you, and they are correct, that civilians have been involved in other um, types of investigations uh, that the police department uh, performs. This is significant because it is independent from the Phoenix Police Department. Um, And that's something that we have seen, as Uriel mentioned, for years and years, people call for. It's also not something that's unique to Phoenix. Um, This is a type of oversight mechanism that uh, people have employed across the country. Um, And I, the Phoenix Police Department was actually the largest department that did not have such an independent oversight mechanism um, prior to the council's decision to have one. Who is this new office going to report to? So the office staff will report directly to the city manager's office, and he will be responsible for the hiring of staff that is in that office. That being said, the investigation, when there is a final report, that will be forwarded to the police chief, who will also have access to the separate investigation done within the police department. So she'll have two reports, and then she will make the final call on any disciplinary matters. Okay, so just to reiterate, if someone from the public files a complaint against a police officer, there's a potential for two investigations to be launched, one from this new oversight office that reports to the city manager and one from the police department's professional standards bureau. So what happens if the separate investigations find completely different things? Like who's responsible for reconciling those differences? And what happens then? So after the investigation of the Office of Accountability, uh, there is going to be uh, simultaneously another investigation internally, and that's uh, the uh, from the Professional uh, Bureau Standards. And that's a unit within the police department that uh, basically is officers investigating their colleagues. Uh, they usually recommend, or I should say they do have a recommendation at the end of the report to the police chief. And as you mentioned, there's also going to be the uh, independent investigation. That also is going to have a recommendation. Ultimately, this is something that uh, police officers have criticized, that it's going to put the police chief in a 
between the police officers and the community. And she's going to have to choose what recommendations she's going to follow, that of her officers or that of the community. So it is the police chief who makes the final determination on police disciplinary actions, right? That's correct. Um, But like everything, there's some nuance. Um, She does make the final decision. However, uh, some of the criticisms from activists and advocates is that officers do appeal those decisions and it goes to the civil service board, which advocates say has a history of repealing whatever the chief has decided. And what do we know about those internal police investigations? Do they usually end up with any sort of punishment or what do those look like? It's something that advocates say, and and based on my reporting, I've also seen it rare when a police officer gets in trouble uh, out of that investigation. But there was one high profile case that happened last year in which Erica Reynolds was uh, searched uh, an officer did a, an improper cavity search on her. Uh, they la- the police department launched an investigation and they actually found the officer did not follow policy. Um, that case ended up being settled for, I believe, $1.6 million. However, I, I think a point that needs to be distinguished in these internal affairs is that they're administrative um, they're not criminal. So even if an officer does get in trouble, um, they'll, they sometimes will keep their job most likely and will ser- uh, serve some sus- suspension after that. But I, I think it's important to know that in some cases, these administrative investigations do lead to officers getting punished. It seems to me that so much of this is just going to come down to Whose version and whose account do you trust? And the people of the state are really going to have to put a lot of trust into the city manager and the police chief as they're weighing these decisions. How do you ensure that that trust is even there after such an erosion of it with what we've seen with not just the George Floyd case, but the Dion Johnson case and so many of these other stories that you have both told through your reporting? That's definitely a fair concern and something that the council debated when they decided to pass this mechanism of oversight back in February. Uh, Mayor Kate Gallego was actually not uh, supportive of this current Office of Accountability and Transparency because of what you just said, that it kind of sets up a really difficult position for the police chief to have to uh, pick and choose whose story to believe um, if the investigations turn up differing conclusions. I will say that it will be really interesting to see how this pans out because you're right, this does require a lot of trust in the police chief. Um, And rightfully so, there have been a lot of skepticism about whether those decisions will be made with the community's interest at heart. So I I think Ariel and I are both very interested to see how this pans out at the end of the day. Ariel, how do some of the community members that you talk to feel about this new office? Do they think this is going to be adequate to the to the problem? Well, when the uh, city council approved this narrowly, uh, it was such a historic moment. 
um, it was surprising even for me and, and Jessica who were covering that meeting because it seemed like it was going to go nowhere and it was going to be a repeat of the past. They tried so hard and it failed again. Um, I think for the community members who pushed for this, it's in many ways, and I know it's kind of a cliche to say, uh, we can say this about a lot of changes, it's a first step to uh, uh, accountability and transparency. Ultimately, I think what uh, community members uh, are, why they're happy about this is because whatever cases they're going to investigate and whatever data they're going to analyze is going to be more uh, publicly available. Um, they don't, they're going to publish, or at least what we've been told is that they're going to more, uh, they're going to publish this data, the findings and the outcomes uh, uh, more proactively, as opposed to waiting for a public records request that, as many of us know, can take weeks to months and can be really expensive. Um, so it, I don't think community members think this is going to address all the issues, but um, as some have said, it's going to open up the books. And Jessica, how did the council arrive at $3 million? And it, give us some sense of context about how much money that is or, or how adequate that would be toward, you know, addressing some of these issues as well. So the $3 million uh, number came from Councilman Carlos Garcia, who was the architect of this plan uh, back in February, his office was able to determine, you know, based on uh, the costs, the administrative costs of setting up this office, that that's likely uh, the number that they would arrive at. In the context of the greater general fund budget, which is how cities fund most things. This is like a small, tiny little drop. The total budget is $1.3 billion. That's general funds. Uh, and so $3 million, obviously not a lot. Though I will say that this year, every city in the nation is facing you know, revenue issues because of COVID and the lack of sales tax coming in. So the city of Phoenix is looking at at least a $26 million uh, deficit. So for them to agree to add money at a time when they're fearful they might have to decrease services or implement furloughs or something like that down the road, um, it was a pretty significant step for them to take. How much credit uh, is given or should be given to the thousands of activists who have taken to the streets after the death uh, of George Floyd? Is that really what kind of prompted such action uh, with this oversight office? Well, the oversight office was approved in February, long before any of us knew the name George Floyd. So the intent of the office, I would say, was not because of the current unrest. That being said, the city was planning to only spend $400,000 on this office until the protests that have occurred the last two weeks. And that, I think, without a doubt, is the reason why the city increased that amount to $3 million, to the full funding of that office. We will change this! We will Okay, so let's shift gears to the other big issue in all of this. 
The other side of the conversation is the push to defund the police. That's, to a lot of people, a pretty radical idea, but it's also one that's kind of vague. Um, Uriel and Jessica, what have people sort of sketched out when, when they use that kind of language? What are they really talking about? Is that eliminating funding for the police departments? Is it, you know, blowing up the police department and starting over with a new public safety agency? What is it that they're getting at? So that's a really good question because I think that defund the police does sound to many people as though they're asking to abolish the police department, which I'm sure there are some people asking for that as well. But I think the majority of people, when they say defund the police, what they really are asking for is to move some of the funding that we allocate to police departments to other community programs that might do just as much, if not more, for public safety. For instance, there's been a lot of calls to invest money into pre-K programs, into mental health programs, into community centers, things that would provide uh, you know, more community investment. Um, and a lot of times when you also hear defend the police, they're talking a lot about like the militarization of police. Like, do you need some of the military grade weapons and uh, vehicles and things like that? Those are all very different conversations than I don't ever want to see a police officer again. Um, but that's understandably a difficult uh, thing to explain to people because I do understand like defund the police sounds like abolish the police, but they're not necessarily the same thing. That's right. Um, it, to add to that is I think for police officers, when they hear that defund the police, it sounds alarming. Um, but ultimately, like uh, a lot of movements, they use uh, terms to catch attention. And ultimately, I think what Jessica said is that to use some of the money that's been uh, used for police departments to reinvest it in community programs that advocates feel will lower the crime. Um, but on top of that, uh, it, this is something that uh, some police officers have mentioned to me is that they feel overworked. They've been asked to be social workers. They've been asked to come and handle domestic issues that could have easily been handled if it would have been dealt with either years ago or with the, with the counselor or if, um, if people had more opportunities for jobs or education or, or access to healthcare. Um, so. It, it, those conversations from a police officer and what the advocates are asking for overlap. But I think that's uh, like like Jessica mentioned, when when people hear defund the police uh, on face value, it's not exactly what what they're asking for. They're asking for reinvestment in communities. And Jessica, what would city council members even say or how would they approach this issue of reallocating or reconfiguring what the policing model here looks like? So I'll start by saying that during this current budget discussion, that was not even a topic of conversation among the council. The $3 million that is spent on the oversight office that we have been talking about did not come from the police department. This was not a defund the police idea. That being said, I 
do believe that there are some council members willing to have what will be very almost revolutionary discussions about how to look at public safety moving forward. And maybe public safety doesn't mean police. And I think there is more of an appetite for having that conversation than there has been in the past. That being said, that's a that's a really tricky line to walk. And when politicians get labeled as being pro defunding the police, as we talked about, that can mean very different things to different people. So I think it's going to be a tricky path forward. But I do think that the, that conversation will be had in a bigger way than it has been ever before in Phoenix. Ariel, I remember talking with you and Bree after your series on um, police shootings last year. And I remember you guys talking a lot about just how difficult it was for you to get very basic information about these shootings and about the victims. And even after it published, there wasn't a lot of immediate response from law enforcement about this series. At the end of the day, with the protests and George Floyd's death and just this reckoning happening with police departments across the country, how do you think policing in Arizona will fundamentally change moving forward? And not just the policing practices, but the transparency aspect of this, the data. Yeah. Um, the police chief, uh, Jerry Williams, told me and Jessica that uh, what happened in Minneapolis definitely is going to change how police officers do their jobs. One of the first changes we've already seen is that uh, last week on Tuesday, the chief made a policy change uh, banning police officers to to use the uh, a stranglehold on people. And, and and there's a specific term for the stranglehold, but ultimately what it, what the stranglehold uh, does is cut the blood flow to the brain um, of a person. And that's something that a lot of police departments have done uh, since what, what happened in Minneapolis. Um, but ultimately, something that keeps getting lost here is that in the conversation is how prosecutors, when they review these cases, uh, and that data usually goes missing because people, a lot of people don't realize that when police departments are investigating a police shooting, it's also a criminal investigation. And technically, those police officers are also uh, suspects. Uh, if the person dies, uh, those police officers are homicide suspects. And the prosecutor ultimately has to decide whether the killing of a person was justified or not justified. And that's also data that's been missing. Uh, and releasing this information, either from the prosecutor's office or even from the police department, it could really change how uh, officers do their jobs because a lot of people right now want information and they want to understand how often an officer uses force. And once they learn that, they could advocate for different changes resulting in, in how police officers continue doing their jobs. Well, Uriel uh, and Jessica, thank you so much for talking to us. We know you're busy and exhausted through all of this. Try and get some rest, but before you do, tell people how they can follow your coverage. 
You can follow me on Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter, and my handle is ujohnnyg. That's spelled U J O H N N Y G. And you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at jbame underscore news. Bame is B O E H M. All right, listeners, let's dive into some afterthoughts. Um, Yvonne, this has been a really painful subject. Really, this has been playing out in front of the world for everyone to see America wrestling with police practices and racial unrest. Um, How has this thing played out politically? It seems like we've seen uh, both sides sort of retreating to their usual partisan corners on this. How's it playing out? So certainly in the Senate race, which is the most closely watched race uh, here in the state and one of the most competitive um, in the in the country, it is playing out as a key issue. Uh, Republican Senator Martha McSally, who is trying to hang on to the seat, really has tried to to tie her Democratic opponent, Mark Kelly, to this kind of very liberal, extreme idea of defunding the police. And she's saying that the Democratic Party is really trying to mainstream this very dangerous idea. And her messaging seems kind of on point with, her messaging seems really on par with what she's tried to do with, you know, the Second Amendment and gun rights and socialism and China. Like this is the boogeyman of the of the race. And and she's really trying to just directly tie it to Mark Kelly. For his part, Mark Kelly has said, look, I'm not in on board with this whole defunding the police notion. He really is trying to drive home the point that this country, the state needs to reform the way it polices communities. He's saying, you know, I am not for defunding police departments. And he's really talking a lot about the inequalities in the justice system and throughout, you know, society as a whole that really require more action, more transparency and independent oversight to, to try to end some of this misconduct and discrimination. So, Ron, in in some ways, this kind of reminds me of the of the COVID crisis. You know, you have a bunch of different states, a bunch of communities taking, you know, their departments and trying to reform them or come up with some ideas to try to end some of these practices. It really seems to be crafting a patchwork of approaches. Does does this work? What could this work, or could this could this cause even more problems? Yeah, I mean, that's what we'll all have to wait and see. But um, it, it just seems like during the coronavirus uh, early days, the, the states were left to sort of chart their own course in managing this pandemic. And I don't think that there's a consensus about everything that worked or didn't work or how we could uh, end quarantine and, and reemerge safely. But I think over time, there's going to be that kind of consensus. I get the sense that this is sort of how this might play out as well, that there's clearly going to be some sort of actions taken across large metropolitan police departments across the country. How far, how much works, how much is sort of uh, well-intended but not especially consequential, I think all of that is going to take some time to sort out because I don't see a lot of impetus coming from Washington at the moment for any kind of um, uh, bipartisan agreement in terms of what 
the national standards on police and use of force and other kinds of uh, related issues ought to be. Uh, in, in the absence of that national direction, my guess is that we're going to see sort of a lot of different things tried and we'll see what, what works. Yeah, and I would expect to see some sort of legislation or reforms move through the state uh, as well. This is something that has been tried um, a couple of times recently in recent years, uh, but really hasn't um, had meaningful reform. And it seems that the State Department of Public Safety isn't exactly in the best position given the death of of uh, Dion Johnson. This is a force that doesn't even have, you know, body cameras as a whole. So we'll be watching to see uh, what happens on that front. Certainly that's going to be a big conversation that not just police departments will be having, but prosecutors as well. Well, Gaggle listeners, that is all for today. If you like this episode, you can rate and review us on your podcast app. Better yet, if you value the work we do, you can support us by subscribing to the Arizona Republic. Sign up at azcentral.com backslash join. And if you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winget. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Audio in this episode comes from the videographers at the Arizona Republic. Today's episode was edited and produced by Taylor Seeley with oversight from Katie O'Connell. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.